Welcome to my den. If you ran into a colleague at the grocery store whose daughter had just attempted suicide, what would you say? Would you even be able to find a helpful word of encouragement? Most of us would be flabbergasted. Most of us would be paralyzed. Would find ourselves in the awkward zone, not knowing what what should I say? Should I say anything? Would saying something hurt? Have you ever been there before? My guest today is Deb Nupp. And unfortunately, she's had a similar experience. It's something her family is dealing with in the recent past and still into the present. On today's episode, Deb gets very vulnerable talking about her own family and her daughter who struggles and who struggles with suicidality. I've been there before as well, and so I am very very grateful that Deb would go into these deep waters with me today to help give you a glimpse as a business owner and an executive into what you can do to embrace and brace for the shadow pandemic that is coming in the next couple of years. Deb is the managing director at Growth Play, which is an organization that has nothing to do with mental health specifically. Her organization works primarily with attorneys on, you know, sales, training, revenue growth, client acquisition, client experience, but Deb's heart and her passion, and you'll see this come through today on the episode, is truly for helping human beings walk alongside one another in suffering. And she shares the critical moment when she realized most of us don't know how to do this in our personal lives, with our friends, with our family, with our children, and even more shockingly, with our colleagues. Deb doesn't talk much about herself because she's simply a selfless human being, and she actually asked me to talk about another person, which I'll get to in a moment because this other person is doing extensive work in mental health. But let me tell you a little bit about Deb before we get in today. Deb's not just a mentor of mine. Her firm, Growth Play, is a wonderful company who works with professional services, but they've worked with over 350 law firm clients, and that means they've served more than 50% of the Amlaw 200. Deb founded the firm Akina in 2001 that was acquired by Growth Play in 2014. And then as of the past two years, she actually bought her firm back from the private equity company that purchased them initially. So she's back at Growth Play as the managing director, but her focus has shifted because she is so passionate about helping people through suffering. And so Deb asked me to talk today about Jen Marr. Jen Marr is a dear friend of Deb's, and her organization is called Inspiring Comfort, which helps organizations create a culture of comfort where colleagues and leaders can learn to how to walk with people in suffering. I cannot stress how important it is for all of us here, all of you to hear that the shadow pandemic is real and it's happening and it's coming. And by 2024, experts predict that more people will lose their lives to depression, anxiety, PTSD, and suicidality than actual people who died from COVID-19. This is a pending, important issue, and so I strongly urge you to check out Deb Nupp's work as well as Jen Mars. Go to inspiringcomfort.com to check out the work Jen is doing, and keep an open heart and an open mind today as Deb and I take you through the awkward zone and how to brace for the shadow pandemic. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. 
Dev. I, I cannot believe this has come completely full circle for us. I, I, I don't know that I've ever shared this story with you, actually, of how we first met before meeting uh, at CXPS. So I, I want to share this with you because I think it's amazing. So I, my first year at CXPS with, you know, Ryan Sadam's team and everybody. So my first year there, I didn't know anybody, right? It was my very first experience at this conference. And I was, I believe I was 19 at the time. I may have just turned 20. And so I went to the before, you know, pre-conference party up on that rooftop bar. Yeah. And it was so loud, if you remember that, right? Like it, they had yeah. the band, it, you couldn't hear anybody. Well, I was just walking around trying to meet people. And someone, I don't remember who it was, maybe Allison, um, oh gosh, Anyway, someone in, someone said, you've got to meet Deb. And they're like, you got to meet Deb because it's like super loud. And they like pointed across the room and I saw this bubbly blonde uh. woman with like, you know, your hair was going everywhere. And oh, you, come on. Like, let's, call it, let's call it what it is. I, <laughs> hey, I, I mean, I'm in Chicago now, but I was in North Carolina. That is big state fair hair that you were witnessing right there. <laughs> Sure, was, fully hot rolled. Yeah. Oh, it was it was gorgeous. But <laughs> I saw your smile and like laughter across the room. And as soon as we met, so we went to that the that dinner thing afterwards, mm -hmm. and that was the first time we got to talking. And I swear, the first sentence out of your mouth, I felt like I'd known you for years and years. And you may not know this, but you are the singular person. Like when I think back to why I'm even doing what I'm doing now like th this podcast, this my business, helping leaders, it's because you told me this the very first time we met. You asked me why I was hiding my age. Because mm. at the time I was hiding it. Like I wanted people to think I was in my 30s because oh. I was, you know, training and consulting companies. But anyway, you you just stopped me point blank and said, why, why are you hiding your age? Why not use that as an advantage? So anyway, here we are full circle. I'm oh so goodness, glad you're Anna. here. <laughs> and I remember that moment. I do. And I'm so glad that that had that left a mark on you. I, I Let me just say this. So my version of meeting you is you, first of all, you are totally lit from within. You are a person who has a level of light that just emanates. And so I'm um, thankfully, being uh, what we're going to get into, I know here is a native analog. I mean, you could not have a poster child for analog more than me. And it, and it gives me a great uh, point of view and perspective and wisdom when I can absolutely feel the presence of people who are up to stuff. And so it was captivating. So know that whatever impression I may have been making across the room, I can just tell you that being in, in your presence, it was very clear to me that there was something um, shining inside and out. And, and so when I, when I said that, why do you had your age? You know, there were two things I think that were going on in that moment. I, one was that I think it is absolutely exceptional, particularly when people are engaging in wisdom based pursuits and things that are so not of a nature of their peer group that the dip point of differentiation around that is just, it was stunning. It really, left a mark on me. And, and immediately I thought, wow, you know, just the ability to be a voice and to be such a, a statement of possibility for, for people that are your age. I thought, man, that is like, why would you have that light under a bushel? I mean, it is about you know, bringing it out so people uh, could know that about you. Um, and then the second thing, and, and I'll, I'll say in, almost in parallel, as you know, um, I love uh, thinking about how to promote and market and, and really connect with people and, and branding and connecting with personal branding. And I immediately was like, and there is a differentiator. Like I immediately was like, girl, you better yes. capitalize on this. <laughs> this is totally, you are an, you are category of one. And so to see now that you are in the space of really leaning into the thing that started our relationship and my observation of you generationally, um, I just, I'm so proud of you. And I know that sounds like an, an analog old lady thing to say, but really I am, I am beyond proud of your listening and paying attention to the light. And I, I, you know, so I can't wait for the rest of the discussion, but no, I did not realize that was something that marked you. So thank you for that gift. Of course. Well, we could just make this a compliment battle the whole time <laughs> going back and forth, but no, seriously, that, that light, I think from within you. And then I guess what you saw from within me is something that 
I know drew us together. And, and this is why like I, I continue learning from you and you've told me that every time we talk, you're learning from me. And so I just, I love having, every time we have a conversation, it makes my day better. And, no. and so what I really, really would love to, I feel like we haven't talked about this in quite some time, or even if ever, I don't know that I've ever heard your journey from how you even started. Well, I guess remind, so growth play you acquired, right? How, how many years has that been? Well, so yeah, so well, well, I'll answer that question specifically, and then I can walk you back the backstory. So actually growth play acquired my original business. So I founded a consulting business in 2001 and the business was called Akina. And in 2014, a private equity firm uh, found us and was very interested in acquiring several consulting businesses that were focused in the sales effectiveness space. And so Akina at the time was uh, really developing a brand specifically in business development for lawyers. And you got to imagine if you can teach a lawyer how to sell, most people are like, hmm, maybe you've got something there. But nonetheless, um, the private equity firm approached us. And so we we came to an agreement and I actually sold my business completely uh, in 2014. And for six years, uh, became a part of a roll-up under the brand of Growth Play. Um, and I'll just say uh, the journey was marked with many, many lessons and, and many, many experiences. Thankfully, a lot of them were very positive. Um, and there was such a piece of that journey that really brought to life the importance of having really uh, sober um, truth about who you are and what you're about and what you are called to do and living within that uh, from a place of true authenticity. Um, you know, I, I teach authenticity and, and yet here I was not necessarily living it and paying attention to it. And so in 2020, uh, we managed uh, the community of folks that were largely a part of the original business, Akina. Uh, we came together with a few new folks that we uh, began uh, or started working with under the growth play umbrella. And we managed to facilitate a management buyback. Um, and it was uh, the most uh, harrowing and cathartic a professional journey ever. And now here we are, you know, more than a year uh, in our sort of reconfigured. So we kept Growth Play the brand um, and the spirit and the energy of our work is still very much Akina. What is it like to be a woman in a not only male dominated industry that you serve as your clients being, you know, law firms, but what is it like being a woman buying back your company mm. from a private equity firm who oh, I'm assuming goodness. are also majority men. Like, what is yeah. that like? Well, I think it, it well, it is, um, it's, un, for me, it was unprecedented in the sense that I don't have anyone in my immediate network or even in my secondary network who had ever experienced this particular aspect of journey. And the gender piece, um, for me, I, I can say confidently, you know, I, I began work um, in the late 80s. So I started my career in the late 80s, uh, began in human resources, and then quickly got uh, pulled into sales. And and really, I have always had sort of this perspective of operating in uh, capacities where the work I'm doing may be surrounded in human resources, working with a lot of really high-powered, really effective women, and then moving into the sales side of the organization, so often being the only female in a community of really exceptional um, men. And of course, I'm, I'm certainly generalizing here, but I, I can just say that gender had just never been a thing. And yet, you know, as a, as a woman, as a female leader, as a person who, a female business owner, um, I always have felt really compelled that, you know, that I, I need to, I need to pay attention to the fact that a lot of women have had very different experiences than I've had and they have really had authentic struggle. And so while I have always been, let's say empathetic, actually, no, probably more sympathetic, frankly, that that there are meaningful disconnections that can happen in, in, in business, really in life, um, that fall along gender lines. But really, prior to 2014, that just wasn't a part of my own story. Um, so here I am, you know, running a company from 2001, owning and running a company from 2001 to 2014. I never, ever had the aspiration to build a big company. It was just not in my orbit, nor did I ever have a deep longing to have, you know, some magical, you know, financial payout. I mean, I wanted to make a great living, but it was just never about that. It was always about the meaningfulness of the mission and the work and the money just sort of 
fell, you know, happened. So here I was, you know, in 2014, uh, we were an all female business and being approached by a, a private equity firm. And truthfully, Hannah, the first conversation I had with uh, one of the uh, executives that was really facilitating the roll up, I had absolutely no idea. This is how clueless I was. We were having a conversation. He laid out a roadmap for what he was wanting to do. I looked at him and I was like, man, that is a great idea. And then I said very naively, I said, "Is how can I help you? I mean, I, I really think it's a great idea to have a professional services focused sales effectiveness business. Tell me, you know, can I introduce you to people? Are there, you know, how can I help? And he looked stunned like, don't you understand that I'm, you know, we're on a date? You're like, I had no idea. Like it was completely nowhere on my radar. That's how not oriented I was to the space of, you know, selling a business. And, and at the same time, you know, never would have, I have ever thought that my, my naivete would in any way would have been connected to gender. So there we are in 2014. And, and uh, once I realized like, oh my goodness, you're, he's like, well, I thought maybe your business would be a business of interest. And I was like, oh, no, 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 we're not for sale. So I really quickly recoiled and, you know, immediately kind of hunkered down. It's like, no, this is, this is not, not available. And, 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 and felt really afraid and anxious. And all of a sudden I felt kind of outgunned and vulnerable. These are just, were not emotions that I had very often in business. And yet here I was. And so for the next series of weeks, as, um, as the pursuit and the courtship and the, you know, and the performas and all these things started to unfold, uh, it became clear to me that when I would recount that story to folks, I got a hundred percent positivity rating. And in, in some regards, people would say, oh my goodness, a private equity firm wants to buy your business. Like almost like as a microaggression, it was like you, you piddling you. So it, it, it started there. It was, it was a sense of like, I, I, everyone thought it was like the brass ring. And so what I allowed then was to shift my own focus to say, well, obviously there's something wrong with me. I'm missing something. And so the experience of selling my company and moving through the transaction and then coming to realize that I um, was not being true to myself and then having to find the courage to do something that I didn't know how to do. And, and again, placing myself again in that naive, vulnerable space and then to come out victorious you know, I'll say a few things, and, and this is really important. First and foremost, you know, there's a lot of conversation around gender bias. And I think there is a certain sense that we have to be, we have to be respectful and, and honoring that men and women are, 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 they have different experiences. And as, as a result, we, we show up in the world differently. Um, and that's very real. And there's a lot of data that backs it up. I think it's also really important to know that when we think about bias, sometimes, or at least in my case, the gender bias was my own. I had female gender bias. It was my own sense of what women can and can't do. And so I ended up making the choice to sell a company that I loved that I'd never wanted to sell. And I did it because I wanted to believe that I was missing something that everyone else thought was like the greatest thing ever. Secondly, I decided that I wasn't enough and that I had to surrender my conviction and my belief and my idea because it was it was incomplete it was it was insufficient and so i gave up all of that that sense of of authority and agency and power because i i wasn't enough I, I, because i didn't want to be a ceo and didn't want to have a 100 million dollar business so clearly there was a flaw um but here's the worst part and i really want to say this to you Hannah in particular i somehow along the way thought i needed to be the poster child of Lean In, and it's no dinging at Sheryl Sandberg. I think her book is amazing, and it was her story. And I think sometimes people think, oh, well, that's the roadmap of what we should be doing. Well, guess what? I, I fell into the trap. I absolutely thought if I don't sell this company, I am doing the thing that women do. And this is why we don't have enough women in the C-suite. This is why we don't have women, you know, having major wealth creating events. So I decided that it was my job for womankind to sell my company and to do the hard thing so that I wouldn't help, that it would be, you know, would be harmful to women if I didn't. So let's just say those three things are not true. <laughs> I am so, I mean, this is perfect timing for one. I'm so, so glad you brought that up because I was actually having a conversation with a, another wonderful female friend of mine who's a, you know, a leader in a, um, she's, she's a VP in a bank here in the area. 
And we were talking actually last night about this whole idea of gender bias, but it was exactly what you just said, which is that the the bias is often on our side. It's not that there needs to be some mega production that, you know, men completely change the way that they think about the world. A lot of times it's our responsibility to say, you know what? I am misinterpreting a situation or didn't have the right expectation going in. And oh my gosh, I I had two of these situations come up recently. Mm-hmm. And and it was eye-opening for me. And the first one, so I have a, there's another Gen Z firm or Gen Z run firm that I have been having conversations with, you know, we, we don't, we're not in the same space. They do a completely different, you know, work with Gen Z, completely different subset. Well, I, myself and the CEO, we've been talking for a while. We had a couple of conversations and he's really cool and he's very analytically driven and we had all of these commonalities, right? So we've been talking probably, I think we've had maybe three calls. Well, I got a cease and desist letter a couple days ago and yeah, and, and apparently through one of our conversations, it was uh, his company misinterpreted something I said, which me being the woman here, I'm, I'm always asking people, how can I serve you and how can we partner and, you know, how can I bring value to you? Those are common phrases that I use. Well, to them, the interpretation was something to the effect of um, by by you saying you want to partner with us, you're trying to infringe on our IP. And so we, so he thought every question I was asking was to try to get him to share more and more information about his company so I could duplicate it. So the point here being the learning for me, and we're in the middle of this, so obviously I'm not going to share extreme details, but the fact is my willingness as a woman to constantly see the world as something to nurture and as some, you know, as people to care for was taken in the wrong context and it's resulted in me getting into this whole battle with, you know, lawyers. So anyway, the point being, I have realized about myself that sometimes what I put out into the world as a woman is not seen the same way to men or even just other people in general. And that's something we have to recognize, or at least I've found, I've had to recognize in myself to say how, how can I leverage the strengths of being a woman without calling this gender bias, but just learning from the experience, you know? Yeah. Hannah, well, I will just say this. Um, but, well, I'm, I'm so proud of you to hit your first wall. I mean, as an entrepreneur um, and as a person who's really up to something, um, the, the think of this as the, as the signal that it must really matter what you're doing. And when you, you know, they, it's often said that you know that your business is, is broaching, you know, breakthroughs or greatness when you are facing a challenge. And so I think that I'll just say that. I want to also say that's cuckoo town, what you just told me. The, 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 what, how that might be misinterpreted. It really, what it signals to me is the person on the other side. I would just say, you know, bless her heart or bless his heart. Um, that he has the perspective of scarcity and that, that recognition that in, in, if, if any of these scenarios in business are all about like stealing the IP, wouldn't it be great if it was just about the IP? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if that's, if that was the, if that was the key, you know, I mean, I, I, so I just, I just want to, I want to affirm like, that's just, that's just cuckoo town. Um, And then I would say the other thing though, is your spot on you, you'll be very wise to pay attention to, um, what feels authentic and natural and reasonable there is, you've got to leave room that it will have, um, the possibility to create misunderstandings or misinterpretations. And sometimes that misunderstanding or misinterpretation can be very distracting and costly and reputation pinching and things of that nature for sure. Um, so I'm sad that you're going through it and I'm also really happy for you because what I know this will do is it will help you build an even stronger foundation from which you're going to be able to say, okay, I now, now I know how to, how I need to be in the space of, uh, you know, where, where boundaries may lie and then double checking, um, interpretations and really having the ability to, to ensure that, you know, what I'm offering or saying, you know, play it back to me. So you understand. So you, you'll probably have that extra measure of play it back to me so that I can ensure we're on the same page, um, will become a really important life lesson for you for sure. 
100%. And it also, this experience, which I'm sure many, many other people have had my experience with a misuse of words. I mean, we're all human, right? But I think it's one of the reasons that being able to leverage young voices in an organization is so powerful because I'm starting to experience, even at 24, I'm adding filter layers to my language already. And I can only imagine what happens when you're, you know, 30, then 35, then 40, and how many layers of filters and being careful about words and being fearful of cancel culture, being, you know, all of those things. I can only imagine as you get older, what type of of filters that you're constantly putting your own words through. I well, I'd love you to speak to that and see if I'm even on point here, but I I would imagine, you know, me being 24 now and then looking at some of the things my siblings, their friends are so unscared or unfearful of saying and realizing they just haven't had a chance to start experiencing the repercussions of what happens when you're not careful about what you say. Yeah. Well, I think Hannah, again, it's, I think there's a lot of wisdom and, and as you're, as you're examining your generation and recognizing that, that it's sort of like the, the, the innocence and the, and the, and like the freedom and the boldness, um, a lot of times when that is unchecked, it's just because it hasn't yet met reality. So I think that your generation is, is got the, the capacity to tra- do transformation. Your, your generation is transforming already, not the least of which when you start to look at how's that going to show up in traditional, in, in a traditional setting, but, but what you'll, you're probably finding, and this is some, one of the hardest lessons to learn, and this is true for men and women, is that when you come into the environment and you are the disruptor, you're the anomaly, you're the, you're the, um, your, your point of view is the outlier. What I sometimes see is because there's boldness and no fear and everything, the reality, even when sometimes that's met with conflict, that the young person will operate on the assumption that they have the authority on truth and will be dismissive to say, well, then if you don't, if you don't get what I get, then you're not for me. And sort of that sense of like, I'm so convicted in what I, what I believe to be the right way to do things that if you're not in full alignment and, 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 and shepherding me and encouraging me to keep moving ahead with my grand, big, whatever, um, then you're dead to me. You know, I'm rejecting you outright. And, and I think that, and I can appreciate, I mean, that's courageous to say the least. And it is, dangerous in the sense of when it when it can go unchecked that also being say though what i don't want is what you're describing is it's a little bit like um you know people used to say you know i had i have a lot of my clients say man i was so committed to becoming a lawyer and i had justice and everything and then i got my first corporate law job and it was about documents and transactions and it wasn't about transformation and so that reality and the crushing uh, jolting uh, emotion. And so what I would say, well, two things, one around the filters. Yeah, this is, this is a part of our journey. And, and again, we just start to become less and less and less of who are full and complete and, and sort of a, and transparent, authentic selves. And then we turn 50 and when you turn 50, all the layers come off. And so there is a, there's a, what are you, what are you planning to do and how are you planning to show up between 24 and 50 is, is it can, it, that the natural propensity will just be layer, 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 and become less and less perhaps of your, of your most transparent self. Um, and I would say if you can take your boldness in your, in your disruptor and, you know, outlier mindset and generously try to understand your audience, generously, generously try to understand where they're coming from so that they can absorb and build and draw energy from your dis- differences that's that's the for me the difference maker it's this step of am i here to be served or am i here to understand my audience to be in service first and it requires a great deal of maturity to meet other people where they are um and i can say the most successful people i know that's one of their superpowers mm. no I, that's been my experience completely as well and it's something that i i want to help 
my generation understand how to maintain so much of that boldness, that courage that I, I you'll probably laugh at this because I, I know you're a mom. Uh, you're a mom just like my mom is. I'm not a mom yet, but my um, we went on a beach trip with my family last summer and my, so I have six younger siblings, as you know, and my brother who's right smack in the middle he is so good about picking just the right nagging, sharp-tongued thing to say right at the wrong moment, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and my, I remember this moment, we're sitting out by the pool, and my two, the younger sisters, so it's a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old, they're sitting there doing something. Well, my brother walks up to my mom and, and makes a request, and he, he basically said something to the effect of, you hypocrite to my mom. He's like, you hypocrite. You just told, you know, my two, two siblings, Mimi and Becca, they could do this. And as soon as I ask about it, I can't do it. What is that? What is that? (laughs) He said something to the effect of what does that say about your parenting or the example you're setting? Can you imagine other generations saying that to their parents? (laughs) Well, no. Oh, so so I thought I I, I answered your question too quickly. Um, Being a mom of a 17, 15, and 13 year old, can you imagine someone saying that? And I'll say, yes, I absolutely can imagine it. It's happened. (laughs) And then when I step back and you're saying, but can you imagine that in the macro sense? What generation in the world would ever call a parent to task and then say, what does this say about your parenting? Holy cow, that is like, that is like, that's like jugular, you know, 10 years of therapy, unwinding, kind of like searing. Wow. Wow. He's, yeah, you're right. Sharp is a, is, is a good example of that. What'd your mom do? Oh, she, well, she retreated a little bit and she approached him like an adult and was <laughs> able to retaliate. And, but the interesting thing about it is I remember as a very young child watching other parents parent my older millennial friends. So, you know, I might, I was probably eight or nine. And then these were the teenagers of the time, you know, the 17, 18 year olds, their parents wouldn't have any of that sort of, you know, that that sort of disrespect, I guess. And then you have my generation come and, and we are defying so much of authority and institutions and all of these things. And some of I've had conversations with millennials recently who are like, no, we just, we just basically did what our parents said. Like we had to be the good kids and whatnot. And of course this is very broadly generalizing, but you know, even from the, the experiences I hear from former guests I've had on the show who are all, you know, Xers, boomers, and the conversations we have, it's so interesting to me, just the style, the style of parenting and what is expected in, in a child parent relationship has changed drastically. And I think a lot of times, at least coming from, you know, me being 24 and the native digital perspective, I think a lot of that is super, super healthy. And some of it is a little shocking, but anyway, what have you experienced with, with your kids? Well, so, so, um, you're going to have to help me do the math on this one. Um, you know how sometimes, well, first of all, my birthday's coming up, uh, it's February 19th and I am in a, I'm not a, a big horoscope person, but certainly, you know, when I look at, you know, what's the difference between an Aquarius and Pisces and where do I fall? Um, apparently my birthday is right at something they call the cusp. And so tends if, if, if I am going to spend a minute reading a horoscope, which again, I don't often, but if I do, I always pick the one that I think is most relevant to a good day. And then I'll just say, Oh, for today, I'm a Pisces. Oh, today I'm an Aquarius. All right. So the cusp is something that I wanted to ask you about, because I think I am on the cusp of boomer, actually a boomer gen X. I think that's where we go, right? I was born in 67. So I'm turning 55. I'm close to Boomer. I think I'm like, I'm in the later stage, you know, early stage Xers, right? But am I right? You're or is definitely it... still X. I mean, you I'm could select. probably, you're probably on a, a similar cusp there. But t- traditionally, like if you take the exact lines, a Gen Xer this year is from 41 to about 56, 57, okay, something so like I'm, that. I, so. Okay, that makes sense. You're solidly well, there. I'm, 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 so, I'm, so, I'm, I'm clearly a Gen Xer, so that helps. <laughs> I do feel like a boomer a lot though these days. But nonetheless, my, yeah, my experience has been um, there, the distinction, I think, well, first of all, I think it's a macro view of um, authority. And you said it earlier. I think that the idea of parents in the sense of order, I think we, we, we can't rest on the idea that things have a certain supposed to be way of being. Um, I think a lot of that is what's really being challenged and disrupted. And I think that when, you know, when I look at my experience as a mom and as a parent, I'm, you know, I, I definitely trend 
I'm a more mature mom. You know, I had my first daughter at 37. I had my second at 39 and a half. Uh, so I was almost 40 with my second. And then we brought our third daughter into our family when she was four, but I would have been 42. So you can imagine the peer groups, you know, of, of, of the moms and dads that are, are, are all of our kids' friends are, are probably a good, in most cases, you know, about 10 years younger than I am, you know, five to 10 years younger. And even just that distinction has been a, a, a real eye-opener in terms of how we have a, a certain sense of order and how things are, quote, supposed to be. And what I've had to learn more than anything is uh, the more I get locked on to would and should, and it really should be like this, and I really should, you know, have more respectful kids, and it really should have, all you do when you should is you're shoulding on yourself. And I did say shoulding. But it, it's just, it's not, I mean, should and shame are all kind of married. And I just, I don't think it's, it's not a useful point of view. So what I've had to be able to do is get super curious and really widen my purview to understand what exactly is causing this sort of what occurs is like oppositional defiance, you know, you know, experience, you know, it, it, it is often uh, coming from a place of um, just mindset and purview around what's acceptable and not acceptable. And we don't have some of those more natural boundaries with, with your generation or, or sort of sort of building in the hierarchy of, well, you would never speak to your elders this way. You, you know, that there's a certain, even if what they're doing is totally hypocritical and off the rocker, you as a younger person, you haven't, it's not appropriate. You haven't earned the right to challenge it. Well, I love that your generation is very empowered to say, whoa, 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 that is, you know, that is not okay. But I think taken to any extreme and losing some of the interpersonal respect, I think that's probably been the hardest part is it's just soul crushing. You know, when when a, a ch my child or your brother, or, you know, would say things that would question my efficacy as a mother, like there is seriously no, no worse fear in the world for me than to be regarded as a bad mom, for sure. It almost makes me wonder and I haven't heard about a community or group or anything like this, but there almost needs to be a Gen Z mom support group to simply <laughs> deal with the fact that they have super honest Gen Z children because it's seriously, it is True. a, it is a total thing. It's not just, you know, the people I'm around. This is a generational thing. Um, that, yeah. So, okay. So speaking of, I love that term, shooting, <laughs> shooting on yourself. So speaking of people who think not just kids who think that they you know know everything and know how to handle every situation because obviously we're perfect and we think we do but this happens in business too and i i know you and i have had a lot of conversations about these relationships interpersonal relationships between you know lawyers their staff um you know it it happens in every industry but i know in your mm -hmm. specifically being in law which we all kind of recognize that there must be this this connotation or this air around law where at least when i think of law i either think of um like first first thoughts that come to mind are depression and suicidal rates. Like I, mm. that, that unfortunately, I don't know. I haven't taken a poll of all of my Gen Z friends to see if, you know, those are some terms that come to mind, but we think of just super stressed out, uh, people who are running themselves down to the ground of their careers. And obviously that's not a complete picture, but when it comes to just addressing mental health in the legal space, I know you're doing a lot of, a lot of things around that. So what has been like your journey to to being so passionate about mental health and having better conversations around mental health at work? Yeah, well, I'll just say this. I um, so your instinct that statistically, uh, lawyers do uh, of all professional services uh, in the in the services professions, lawyers do have a a um, statistically noted um, higher instance of anxiety, depression, addiction, and suicidality. So that is, that is bonafide and it is, um, heartbreaking. It is, it is beyond, it is beyond contorting of just the, the pain of the soul and that the sense of well-being and the sense of hopelessness that, that will lead someone to harm or hurt or, or succeed in killing themselves is just, it's just a, it's an, an otherworldly level of pain and grief that you you see and experience. And I'm so grateful. You know, one of the observations I'll say about law firms in particular is 
I have been so proud of my clients in coming to this space of acknowledging and recognizing that we don't know what we don't know. And sometimes in the greatest distress of your life and in the greatest suffering and crisis, sometimes the very blessing that comes from that is you get to the end of yourself to the space of, I don't know what I don't know. And it creates then that capacity for connectedness. Like you, you can't keep trying to white knuckle your way through to get to another side. I think there is a real recognition um, within the legal industry. Uh, it's a growing recognition. I think that the statistics are certainly in place. Um, I think the shadow pandemic predictions, um, I, I, I would say you know, to you and as you're connecting with leaders, here's a, here's a really good question uh, to ask any leader of any organization. I would ask them uh, on a scale from one to 10, how ready do they think their culture, their company culture, their firm culture, how ready is their firm culture to inoculate itself against the peril of the shadow pandemic? How ready are they to navigate and address this looming tsunami known as the shadow pandemic? I would imagine, Hannah, you'll get 100% of the people, their first response would be not a number, They'll say, what's the shadow pandemic? So I'll just say that is, is we have to be playing heads up. So the shadow pandemic, um, at least the piece that, that is uh, really, really where my passion lies, is this recognition that experts are suggesting um, that as an outgrowth of all of the isolation, um, depression, anxiety, uh, pain, uncertainty, this sort of low-grade trauma and high-grade trauma that human beings have been through in the last two years that what experts are suggesting is that it will peak in 2024 that we will ultimately lose more lives to depression anxiety ptsd addiction and suicidality we're going to lose more lives to those traits than actual people who died of covid 19. And yet, when you speak to leaders in any organization, I mean, 2024, you say, you know, it's like a tsunami. The, the data is already swirling. I mean, the American Pediatric Association has declared a true mental health crisis with adolescents, children between the ages of 12 and 18. So, I mean, the data is there, and yet we are immune, or we think it's not going to happen to me. It's, it's those other people, or it's like, oh... You know, so glad that, you know, this isn't happening to my family. It's not happening to me or it's not happening to my firm. Um, and it, that's a really dangerous, I think, posture to not recognize, not to not be aware um, of what's happening on a macro level. Then we get to the micro. And this is where mental health became really true for me. I can say confidently, I wish my advocacy was not coming from such a personal place, but I am also really transparent that my advocacy is coming from a, a, a very personal place um, in the hopes that it will have, it will wield more urgency and influence. So for the better part of the last two years, my oldest daughter has had, uh, teen daughter has had an unbelievable, mighty battle with adolescent and diagnosable depression, anxiety, and suicidality. She has been completely plagued with sets of conditions that have absolutely taken her out of hopefulness, future focus, and ability to see life as a place in a future worth living into. We have lived that firsthand. And when I tell you, as a parent that has gone like overtime, double time, to try and create conditions for openness and communication and, um, you know, heck, I'm, I mean, I'm a coach, like, you know, talking and, you know, being a resource, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm we are a two-parent family. My husband and I have been together. We're celebrating 20 years. Uh, we're people who have a faith construct and system in place. Um, we do family stuff. We're connected. Uh, my oldest daughter, straight A student, you know, top of her class, advocate in service to others, volunteer, uh, competitive, successful athlete. Like this is the it kid. Oh, and gorgeous, I should say, to top it all off. When you look at her and her life and all of the surroundings, there was nothing but expectations for her to continue to, to rise and be great. And yet what we had no idea is that underneath that perfection, and it, I mean, I'm telling you, it was too perfect. 
there was this bubbling, burning pain, searing pain that she had no place to engage, no outlet, which then produced this deep, 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 dark space of hopelessness. And so in the perfection, there was no room for her and her mind to be imperfect. And if I'm really sober and honest with this, her parents, myself, we were encouraging her, you go girl, look how great. I mean, constantly celebrating her accolades and her achievements. Never for a single second would I have imagined she was struggling. It never occurred to me. And so I just tell you this because I know your generation and younger, this is this is the reality. Gen Z is in the throes of pain and suffering. You are the guinea pig generation when it comes to experiences with technology. Your, your orbit and orientation, there is no match. There is no generation that will ever have the same experience that you're having. And a lot of the darkness that gets produced out of that is this sort of un, unfettered human suffering and, and no place to engage it and know how to deal with it in a way that is, um, it's only, the, the crisis is only going to be getting stronger. So I'll just say my advocacy comes from my acknowledgement of my naivete. Um, it comes from my contribution to uh, creating conditions where my daughter had to stay sick a lot longer than she needed to be sick. And it is from this great humility. You never know. You never know what other human beings are experiencing. It is impossible. So at any point that we try to benchmark ourselves against, you know, Instagram ready or Facebook ready, it just, I just want you to know, like there is real pain and real, real mental health uh, situations. Um, and we have to be open and vulnerable and willing to accept that this is real. These are realities despite best efforts despite the fact that it, she shouldn't have these issues, right? Which was a language of my past. Um, and now I'm at the space having now two years on the other side and just watching her miraculous recovery and her, uh, the beauty from which she lives her life very out loud. And I know the hope that she's creating for people um, in her journey. And as she tells her story, um, I know that, her, I know that this, there will be no waste. So as her mom, I owe it to her and myself and to the world um, to not miss what we need to learn so that we can be people who can be with people who are struggling and be be light and be hope and be be present. So that's where it's coming from. And um, and again, I, and, and just as just another point of reference, you know, so we're in the midst of this. We're in just sheer hair, you know, harrowing pain and. I made the choice early on that I wasn't going to hide it. I wanted to hide it. I didn't want to be that family. I didn't want to be that. Oh, because you know what happens if a child is struggling, human beings, myself included, we always are like, oh, it's that parenting thing. You know what? That mom, she works a lot outside of the home. That's why her daughter's sick. I mean, I, I just, I couldn't handle that being a stigma or an impression to me until my daughter got to the spot. I'm like, what am I worried about? Like, it's not about me. It's about creating conditions for her to get well. But we made a choice early on to be really open about what we were doing because we didn't know what we were doing. And we were, we felt so isolated and so alone and felt so out there. And thankfully, we were surrounded by a community of people who had experiences and knowledge. But here's the crazy thing. Out of a community of 15 families that we know really well, 10 of the 15 were experiencing some version of, they were experiencing some version of what we were going through. And yet nine of the 10 never spoke a word. So think about that. I'm orbiting in a community where 10 out of the 15 families that we have been doing life with since birthing our children, 10 of the 15 are having very, very similar experiences with adolescent mental health conditions and nobody was talking about it. So to me, Hannah, that's what we have to change. We have to make room and we have to, we have to learn how to be with people in suffering. We just have to do it, and we don't know how to do it. What was one of the most helpful things someone could have said to you when you first were in the first throes of, of this journey? Because, I mean, and I'm sure with you, 
some of my story too with this, which I, I, you know, that whole story could take a long time to share too, but I, what you're experiencing in your family is going through, you're right. It is, it's so, so common. And yet how often do we talk about it? So like, what, what was a helpful thing or one of the most helpful things someone could have said when you first started this journey and were like, what, what the hell do I do? Like as a parent, what do I do? Yeah. Well, it, it, uh, so here's the thing. The answer is so surprisingly simple that it's one of these translatable skills. Like, so I give this to you and, and I want you to share it with others really. Um, actually right before today, I had a conversation with a woman who spent 10 years studying this and creating a methodology to basically teach people how to be in the awkward zone when other human beings are suffering. So she has an entire methodology that teaches the, the concrete skills for care and comfort and not comfort, like cozy comfort, like comfort, like powerful comfort, like a verb, not like a noun. Um, her name's Jen Mar and her business is inspiring comfort. And um, so she basically teaches this. So here's, here's the foundation. When we are met with someone who is in the space, uh, she said her research suggests that we operate in the awkward zone at a mindset level and then at an action level. And so in a mindset level, her research suggests there's two, two responses. We either deflect, we sort of say, you know what, it's, it's not my, um, you know, we, we, we say that it's not my business. I don't need to step in. It's other people's. I don't want to be a burden. Or we feel very defeated and we have this sense of like, I'm not worthy. I don't know what to do. I feel insecure. I'm afraid, Right. And that has a way of causing us then to to navigate, well, what do we do? And then she said, when we get into the behavioral aspect, there are the avoiders and the fixers. And avoiders will literally turn the other way when they see, see a person who they know is in suffering, they will go and walk down a different grocery store aisle. Or when they run into them, they start conversation and act as if there's nothing going on. Like pick up conversation, like there's, there's no elephant in the room fixers, the moment they interact with you, they will start telling you about every story of every person they've ever known who's had the same struggle. And then they will tell you the worst case scenario. Then they will often come to you and try to give you every article, every introduction, forcing it upon you as if they're trying to be helpful. It's because they don't know what else to do. So you've got this awkward mindset and this awkward behavior. And so here's the very simple answer to your question. When you know another human being is suffering, you simply say to them, I see you. I see you. I see the pain. You say, I can't imagine how hard this must be. I don't have words to describe how sad or how much I see. When people say, you know what? This sucks. This is not anything you would have ever hoped for or imagined or deserved. Hold space. I see you. I see you in your struggle. I'm here. I'm holding space. This sucks. It's called validation. It is not a form of agreement. It's more in the space of helping people be seen and valued. And then the second thing is don't start helping. Don't start jumping in and um, offering to do all kinds of stuff and, or asking, don't ask the person who's suffering, what do you need? What, what can I do for you? Because you're putting all the burden on the sufferer to now make you feel better by giving you a job to do. So the second thing that you do is you say, when you're ready, I have ideas. When you're ready, I have experiences to share. When you're ready or as it's helpful, I have um, a willingness to do stuff. You can also really specifically say, I'd like to bring you dinner this week. Is there a good evening? So it isn't asking if you can bring me a meal or, 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 you know, or I, um, you know, I really, you know, want to, you know, I'm doing this thing or I want to serve you in this way and not requiring the person who's in suffering to, to play it out and give you a job to do. I think it's honoring with words and validation. And then it's holding space to say, I'm here, I'm ready. I'm holding space. Those are the two things. So powerful and so counterintuitive especially that second one, right? Because you think your, your inclination is how do I help you? Even just extending that, right? But, but what I'm hearing you say is the best thing you can do 
is not place another burden on that person by by having them come up with a task for you so you feel better about yourself. That's such a great way of putting it. I I remember being in that place and people would say, what can I do for you? It's like, there, no, there's nothing you can do for me. But if you say like your, your second tip of just say, hey, when you're ready, I'm here. That is so powerful. So how do you even get, so that's at a family level, right? With, with a community, but how do you get an organization to start practicing that sort of dialogue? That is not usual. No, it isn't. I I think, I, I really think, and that's why, I think that's why Jen Mar's business is so compelling to me because that's what she's spent 10 years building. So she's built an organizational focused offering to teach people specifically how to do that and build it in a manner where it turns empathy into action. And she shared with me today, she said, you know, that you take the emotions, the good news, here's the good news about humankind. We actually still care. So when you look at the high percentage of people, when they know someone is suffering, whatever it may be, whether it's a mental health scenario, a fertility issue, and, you know, elderly family member who's you know, been diagnosed with, you know, Alzheimer's, you, someone who's lost a spouse, a loved one, anyone who's grieving or suffering around whatever that may be. She said, the great news is that human beings still feel stuff. And we typically feel empathy, sympathy, compassion. Those are sort of the more positive ways that we show up. She said, but her research also says sometimes what we also feel is apathy. And so it's not all, you know, Pollyanna and roses. No matter what though, she said, it can, you can be taught what to do. You can be given a clear set of messages, language, steps, actions, sample text messages. Like she's really brought it down to that level of predictable, relatable action. And Hannah, I can't imagine that we're going to be able to figure this out on our own. So unless and we'll figure it out on our own when you go through it. Well, I can assure you, I will happily say, don't go through adolescent mental health conditions in order to know how to be with people when they're suffering. It's like not the best teacher. Um, It's an effective teacher, but not the best one. I think we're going to have to look at this like any other leadership skill. I think when you look at the great resignation, when you look at your generation saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to devote my life to something that will cause me so much pain or so much unhappiness or so much, you know, such a lack of fulfillment. I mean, this is a leadership skill. It's not, it's not just a nice to do. I think it's, it's an essential life skill for real. So basically, I love that summary. So men, mental health or understanding how to be with people in suffering, you're saying is equally as important as any other leadership skill. Yeah, hundred percent. In fact, the research bears out that in the next 10 years, the single biggest determinant of leadership effectiveness will be a capacity for social connectedness, the ability to be human to human, that the very best leaders will be superstars in social connectedness. In essence, we're simply coming back full circle away from, you know, we, we were human beings before, we're still human beings, but we went on this whole journey away from it, almost so bottom line focused and shareholder value focused and blah, 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 blah. And now, now the business results are, are predicated on the ability to be human again and to yeah. be empathic and to know how to walk with someone. Yeah. That's powerful. It that's is. Really it is. Powerful. And it, it is powerful. And the fact that it can be taught, you know, and I think that's the thing that we, we often don't think about, you know, that in, in, again, one other thing, fun thing Jen, Jen said, she said, you know, we, we often think, oh, well, we need to train people in empathy. She said, empathy is a noun. You can't empathy a person. You, you know, it's not the action, you know, it's the doing, it's the care and comforting. That's the action of empathy. So if we're, if we're teaching empathy, all we're doing is teaching people to get in touch with their emotions, which is good. It doesn't translate into action. And so it's the action that brings the social connectedness. It doesn't live here in our, our minds, our hearts. It, it moves into being with people and knowing how to hold space to be with people. Thank you for being so vulnerable. You bet. I, this is... No waste, yes. Hannah. You know something, <laughs> and let me just say this, whatever, whatever pain, this is, I guess... Again, and this is the native analog for you. I, I can say this. What I now know as I'm approaching 55 is that I ha- 
spent a really long time in my life trying to look like the person who has it all together and operating on the assumption that I got to chase one peak moment and not even enjoy it long enough because I got to create the next peak moment. And then I had to create the next peak moment. Like there's a, there was that strive, drive, drive, drive and measuring the quality of my life based on that peak moments. And here's what I can tell you. Here's the, here's the secret, if you will, if I had one to give you, it's that the peak moments are fleeting. It's the suffering that defines suffering. It's understanding that it's like human experience is distress tolerance. It's moving from one distressful situation to another with grace and acknowledging that when there is a peak moment, it is to be respected and, and regarded and revered, but it's not permanent. The human condition is not a condition of perfection. The human condition is messy and sloppy and hard and learning, but that's, that's the juxtaposition of joy. So I would just say to your generation, learn how to embrace suffering, learn how to embrace distress and learn how to let it be a teacher so that when you are in your peak moments, the sweetness is so much greater. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>